0: Earlier this year, China announced the discovery of two shipwrecks from the Ming Dynasty, found some 1,500 metres below the South China Sea. The headlights of an archaeologist's submarine picked out treasures unseen for five centuries, heaped in piles on the rocky seabed. But for the Chinese government, that long-lost treasure was not the most precious discovery. Those shipwrecks were a political triumph. I'm David Rennie, the Economist Beijing Bureau Chief, and this week I'm joined by Gabriel Crossley, our China correspondent. And we're asking, why is China scouring the South China Sea for shipwrecks? And how is the Communist Party using archaeology as a tool of nationalism? This is Drum Tower from The Economist. Gabriel, welcome to Drumtire. Hi, thanks for having me. I must say, even by Drumtire's standards of doing everything over the internet, we have surpassed ourselves because normally you and I sit in the same office in Beijing, but you're on the road, so we're still doing it over the internet as if I was doing this with Alice. Alice is away this week, but I am thrilled to have you here on the podcast.
1: That's right. Maybe someday we'll do it in the same room, but at the moment I'm down in hot and sweaty Guangdong on a trip.
0: Well, it's hot and sweaty here in Beijing, as I'm sure you are willing to believe, because it's been that kind of summer. And frankly, you have chosen a good moment to be away from the madness that is China's capital, because here in Beijing, it has been all gang all the time for more than a month. And I guess it'll die down soon, but I'm sure you can sympathize. It's nice
1: to be away from some of the wilder theories, I have to say.
0: And just to add to the mystery, any previous explanation about him being unwell just disappeared. And now the foreign ministry is stonewalling every question they receive. And I know you will believe that because you have been at the foreign ministry press conferences in your day, Gabriel.
1: Yeah, they're very good at saying no comment in a slightly insulting way.
0: Someone counted, I think it was 17 versions of no comment that they gave. So that's close to a record. I know you
1: said that the mystery will come to an end about Gang eventually, but I'm honestly not so sure, David.
0: So you're right, Gabriel, China's foreign foreign minister, we really still no idea what has happened to him. Perhaps, you know, he's in some degree of trouble. Perhaps he is in a lot of trouble. And at that point, we'll talk about him again on Drum Tower. But Gabriel, you are here to talk about your recent deep dive into shipwrecks in the South China Sea, which sounds like the stuff of a Jules Verne novel. How did you come across this story?
1: Yeah, so last October, a team of deep-sea archaeologists discovered two Ming Dynasty ships that had sunk in the South China Sea. One ship had a vast cargo of porcelain cups and vases, and the other one, which was about 20 kilometres away on the seabed, was carrying precious timber.
0: The Ming Dynasty is one of the great high points of Chinese imperial culture. What's the significance of this being a Ming Dynasty cargo? The Ming Dynasty
1: saw China's porcelain industry reach new heights with this very famous sort of blue and white, very distinctive patterns being sold as far away as Europe.
0: The famous Ming Vases, broken in many a terrible sitcom. Exactly,
1: yeah, a famously valuable object. And there were plenty of broken ones on the seabed, but also a staggering amount, which almost looked as if it had just been made. It's really quite breathtaking. Even though the wrecks were about 1,500 metres below the surface of the water the cargo was still largely intact. So back in May, viewers of the state media channel CCTV got a look at what the ships were carrying.
0: Let's take a look at that. Oh my goodness, there are all these bowls just kind of still stacked up as if it's like a porcelain shop on this very, very deep seabed. And you can see the patterns on the blue and white porcelain, You can see the colours on the glazes of some of them.
1: It's stunning, right? And you can hear the news reporters saying that these wrecks are not just an important discovery for Chinese underwater archaeology, I quote, but have artistic and historical significance for the world. And it's that aspect of it which is really important to China, because these discoveries aren't just something they want to showcase to a domestic audience. They have a bigger geopolitical significance as well.
0: To ask a really obvious question, how come they survived intact so far down and for so long?
1: Yeah, it's puzzling, but the archaeologists think that the cargo is so well preserved because the ships landed on rocks and not sand, so all of this porcelain didn't just get covered by silt and lost.
0: And what's the significance of what was on this ship? So the two ships
1: they kind of give us a snapshot of global trade during the Ming dynasty. Scholars think that the porcelain was being shipped out of China, probably from imperial kilns and somewhere like Jindogen. And then the timber was probably being brought into China to build ships or palaces.
0: So this is a wealthy, sophisticated China. The Ming dynasty runs from, what, the 14th to the 17th centuries. How did they find these wrecks? Was this quite a technological achievement?
1: It really was. So the submarine that went down and found the Ming ships, which is called the Shenhai Yong or the Deep Sea Warrior, is a really impressive piece of kit. It can withstand pressures at depths of up to 4,500 meters. It's got robotic arms to pick up these kind of artifacts, as well as cameras which can create digital models of wrecks. Tellingly, its manufacturer, the state-owned company called China Shipbuilding Industry Corporation, boasts that 95% of the components used to make the submarine were made in China. So this is a really impressive feat of archaeology that China is pulling off. Certainly no other country in the region, perhaps even the world, could match it.
0: And that is because underwater archaeology has the support of the top leaders, right?
1: Exactly. I mean, there's been more money going into it since the 1980s, but the amount of support is really ramping up under Xi Jinping.
0: And the state media and the propaganda machine has been really promoting archaeology to the general public. There was a documentary series back in 2021, again on CCTV, called Deep Dive, and that followed archaeologists testing the Jiaolong submersible, which was one of the first Chinese vessels capable of really extreme deep sea exploration. That was back in 2014. so there you hear the sub captain describing that feeling of being dropped into the ocean he's saying that you see the water coming up past the windows and you realize okay we're underwater now and then you hear a clunk and that's the sound of the cable being released and then he says you're on your own And of course, that's so interesting, because this state TV documentary is doing a lot of work. This isn't really only about archaeology, is it?
1: No, exactly. It's showcasing advanced Chinese technology. It's great domestic propaganda. So another submarine called the Fandouzha, which means Striver, will also join the excavation efforts in the South China Sea. And this one can get down to 10,000 meters. So this really speaks to China's very impressive advances in this field. And because of this technology, China is dominating the wreck-finding business.
0: I don't know if it's telling that they use the name Fandor, which is like one of Xi Jinping's favorite words, right, for struggle. Maybe I'm thinking too hard about this stuff. But I mean, this is dual-use technology, right? It's not just good for finding archaeology wrecks. It's good for finding oil fields. It's good for military reasons, too. This is technology that great powers need.
1: Exactly. It's useful for coming up with high-resolution maps of the deep sea, which are good for submarines. Military submarines need this to navigate more accurately. The Shanghai Yongshi helped to find large oil and gas fields and valuable minerals on the seabed.
0: This is a great power contest. And of course, even this investment in archaeology, narrowly archaeology, has a very political side because the discovery of these Ming dynasty ships was not just a curiosity for Chinese scholars.
1: That's right. So after the ships were found, officials in Beijing said the discoveries, I quote, confirm historical facts that Chinese ancestors developed, used, and traveled to and from the South China Sea. This doesn't sound particularly political, but read between the lines, and this means that the ships are being used to bolster China's territorial claims in the area. The Chinese government is essentially saying that the remains of these ships mark territory which China once controlled and therefore which it still should.
0: It's amazing, isn't it? This is about creating facts on the ground. It's about establishing China's narrative and producing evidence that seems to support China's narrative. And Gabriel, you know, we have written so much in The Economist over the years about the South China Sea, that giant stretch of pretty shallow sea full of fish, potentially full of oil and gas, that stretches right down from the bottom of China down past Vietnam to places like the Philippines, Malaysia, and it is contested water, right? Plenty of countries have overlying territorial claims, reefs that they say belong to them, and China has been defending the famous Nine Dash Line, a gigantic claim to the entire South China Sea right down to the shores of places like the Philippines and Vietnam. So we have the
1: Nine Dash Line. This emerged in the 1940s. It seems to many scholars slightly absurd to kind of use Ming Dynasty shipwrecks to make claims for something which really would have made no sense to the emperors of the Ming Dynasty.
0: But China is willing to be pretty isolated in terms of its claims and its logic in the South China Sea, right? Because an international panel of judges, the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague, put out a formal ruling in 2016 that said that China's claims to have exercised exclusive control throughout history over the entire sea had no evidence at all. And China looked as though it was seriously on the back foot. But of course, Gabriel, you will remember that politics intruded because the country that actually brought the winning case against China was the Philippines. But right around the time of that ruling in the Hague, a new Filipino leader, the mercurial strongman Rodrigo Duterte took power and his focus was getting billions of dollars in investments from China. So he started calling that court victory for his own country a scrap of paper that he might throw in the bin. And of course, China responded by continuing to bully the Philippines by claiming land on reefs and sending fishing boats into Filipino waters. That's right. And you don't need to be an international lawyer to realise that there is something quite weird about the claim that a 500-year-old cargo ship proves something about territorial claims now.
1: Right, David. I mean, just because a ship sailed through a sea or to or from China doesn't make it Chinese necessarily. Or the ocean bed underneath that ship, Chinese. I mean, at this period, the crews of ships sailing through this region could well have spoken Arabic, Malay or Persian, and not even spoken Chinese at all.
0: And there's an even stranger logical fallacy at work here. Actually, back when those ships sank in the Ming Dynasty, the notion of fixed borders and lines on a map was completely alien within China. There's a wonderful book, Bill Hayton's The Invention of China, which explains just how incredibly recent China's obsession with territorial integrity and lines on maps is. You know, he talks about how when Jesuit missionaries from Europe came to 17th century China and started talking about nations and sovereign territory, they were just told, no, no, the Chinese emperor governs all under heaven. And at that time, the edges of that territory, as you know well, Gabriel, as a student of Chinese history, they were fuzzy, right? It depended on the power and the strength of the emperor of the day, just how many tributary or vassal states were under his sway.
1: Right, what counted as China sort of faded away the further away you got from the capital. But even though this concept of China's sharp border claims is quite modern, the country is still actively pursuing this line about shipwrecks proving territorial claims. This involves chasing off other countries who are also trying to do their own investigations of these hidden treasures. So in 2012, a Chinese ship chased away one led by a French archaeologist who was working with the National Museum of the Philippines near the disputed Scarborough Shoal. China's also sent archaeological ships into disputed islands that Vietnam claims and has come up with shipwrecks, which it says, again, prove that China has long been in control of these areas.
0: And Gabriel, that is such a window on the way that China uses all arms of state power. You know, you have these archaeological ships in these most disputed waters of the South China Sea, but they're also sailing alongside Chinese Navy ships and the Coast Guard and the maritime militia, right? And to focus on the archaeology, what's fascinating is how the party isn't just trying to control the narrative about how the far distant past supports its territorial claims in faraway seas. Because the party cares a lot about proving a very specific account of ancient history on dry land where there are no questions about ownership or sovereignty.
1: That's right, and it's a narrative that Xi Jinping is pushing not only at home, but also globally as a means to bolster the Communist Party's legitimacy overseas as well.
0: Before we talk about that, here's the usual reminder that if you subscribe to The Economist, you can read much more from our China team including Gabriel's really brilliant piece about how Chinese journalists are having an even tougher time than usual. That's
1: right. The CCP is now making sure they have all the right ideological opinions. And to help with that, it's given them some training materials, lots of lectures with titles like politicians must control the newspapers.
0: And I trust you've been studying in your spare time. Exactly. It's
1: fascinating stuff.
0: And if you want to read Gabriel's piece, you'll need to be a subscriber. And if you're not already why not try our free 30-day digital subscription? Visit economist.com slash drum offer to find out more. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow, wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Gabriel, the salvaging of shipwrecks in the South China Sea is about so much more territorial claims, right? It's about advancing a much more ambitious claim about Chinese civilization and how exceptional it is.
1: That's right. China wants to be thought of as less of a nation state and more of a civilization state, that the Communist Party are heirs to 5,000 years of continuous Chinese history stretching back into a mythic past. And this preoccupation has been happening for a while, even before Xi Jinping, because the country wants to be seen as on a par with the great civilizations like Egypt or ancient Greece.
0: That's right, and somehow that idea of being not just ancient, but the most ancient, unbroken civilization has become a kind of chest-puffing contest between the world's strongmen, right? Do you remember that moment when Donald Trump was U.S. president? He came for his state visit back in 2017 to Beijing. Xi Jinping took him to the Forbidden City, the Imperial Palace, right in the heart of Beijing. And although all of the mood music was about these two friends, when you hear some of the audio that the press captured, you can actually see the two men kind of needling each other, right? Mm-hmm. Donald Trump questions whether China really is the oldest civilization in history.
1: oldest culture, they say, is Egypt at 8,000.
0: <laughs> I see it takes you back doesn't it you know there he is in the middle of Beijing being given this fantastic tour and he just can't resist
1: <laughs> you can hear Xi acknowledging that sure Egypt is more ancient but then he gets in his kicker and says Chinese civilization is the world's only continuous culture. The way we look now is also the way our earliest people looked. Black hair, yellow skin, passed down. We call ourselves the descendants of the dragon.
0: This is pretty dodgy stuff, particularly, let's face it, when there are people living in China, such as Uyghurs in Xinjiang, who do not look like descendants of the dragon. And this is now the way that archaeology and these claims of ancient history are merging with some very important and sometimes fairly dark threads of modern Chinese scholarship and history, where early 20th century nationalists were trying to explain how the country was completely unified, though it wanted to take in Tibetans and Uyghurs and Mongolians. And, you know, you have that stuff about the Chinese civilization or the Zhonghua Minzu being the main trunk of a tree and minority peoples being branches off that trunk. All of this ties together, right?
1: Right. China's nationalists have had a tough time for a while to figure out a way to wrap up all of the country's complexity into a nice simple continuing civilization.
0: And of course, you and I agree Gabriel that China is undoubtedly a great civilization. And you know, I think we should also be understanding of the fact that China is rightly proud of having world-class archaeology, not least because the first years of archaeology in China were basically foreigners tramping around China saying what this or that site meant, right?
1: Exactly. And you saw something similar with underwater archaeology, where in the early days when China didn't really have the technology, it was often European salvagers who were the ones finding these ships and then coming up with their interpretations of what they meant.
0: And flogging the contents at kind of foreign auction houses, right? Like the Nanking cargo.
1: Right. I mean, that's a classic example of something which annoyed Chinese scholars. You had a British salvager finding, I think it was a Dutch ship, but full of Chinese cargo, grabbing what he could off the seabed and bringing it back to sell in Amsterdam. And at the time, China sent some people to try and at least buy some of it, but they didn't have enough money.
0: And if we can have sympathy with China's desire to own its own history, I think it is also fair to say, though, that some of the uses of archaeology have taken China into some very political directions, right? And I think a classic example of that is the use of archaeology since the 1990s to try and back this massive state-owned, state-funded project to draw up a timeline of Chinese history with fixed dates, taking us back to at least the earliest dynasty, the Xia, 4,000 years ago, and ideally as close to 5,000 years as possible. But that is taking us pretty close to legend and myth, right, Gabriel? Yeah, exactly. It is supposed to be the case that the origin story of this enormous state sponsored project to assign strict dates to every dynasty to at least 4,000, ideally 5,000 years ago, actually was prompted by a Chinese leader who went to Egypt in the middle of the 90s and was shown a detailed timeline of Egypt's pharaohs going back 4,700 years. And he came back and actually wrote pieces in the People's Daily and other journals saying that if China couldn't produce similarly precise dates for its dynasties, then a history without chronology can only be called rumour or myth. So, exceedingly political kind of justifications for an academic project.
1: And I'm sure a lot of the scholars involved perhaps are not entirely comfortable with the ways that their discoveries are now forced to fit into the narrative which the state wants. This narrative about continuous civilization has ramped up under Xi Jinping. He's funneled huge amounts of resources and money into archaeology because he wants to find more evidence for this theory. So in recent years, we've seen really staggering investment in archaeology and in museums, like the number of museums which have sprung up In Chinese cities in the last few decades is really amazing.
0: With a particular focus on finding kind of long lost capital cities of the very most ancient dynasties. I remember going in 2020 to Henan near the Yellow River and seeing an archaeological dig site that had had so many really important party leaders come and look at its trenches and walls of mud because it might be a 5,300 year old capital of an early Chinese kingdom.
1: Right. And this interest in archaeology starts right at the top with Xi Jinping. He often talks about it when he goes overseas. He often visits other people's ruins. He's talked about archaeology as something that will reveal the origin of the Chinese civilization and its glorious achievements, which I think is indicative of how he thinks about the whole thing.
0: And does it work with the ordinary Chinese public? Do you sense that there's growing interest in archaeology? I think
1: people find the objects that are found interesting. There are beautiful things under the earth and under the sea, which are being on earth, and they got a lot of time on state media, and absolutely, people like that. But the field itself is still a little esoteric. In 2020, state media and some famous scholars rallied around someone called Zhong Fangrong, who was a school pupil raised by her grandparents in a rural village, got one of the top scores nationwide in China's college entrance exam there, notoriously difficult gaokao. With her school, she could have chosen any major at any university. And people online questioned her decision to choose the relatively unpopular major of archaeology at Peking University, rather than something that makes a lot of money like finance. But maybe with all of the investment that's coming from the state, young Chinese are starting to see this as a patriotic career choice.
0: And of course, that's got to cut both ways, right? I mean, all this money and attention is a mixed blessing for academic historians. They've never had so much high level backing, but they must also know that their job is to find physical evidence for the party's chosen version of history because the stakes are so high. And to go back to that point, why is it so important for Chinese culture to be unbroken, uh, not just very old? You've seen Xi Jinping starting to say the quiet part out loud, right? He's giving these speeches where he brings all the different parts of this theory together and says that the Communist Party is the true heir to 5,000 years of Chinese leadership. And there you see this is not just about 70 years of communist rule or 102 years of the Communist Party. This is about the ancient legitimacy of good rulers in China who can make the country strong and great. And that's got to be quite tempting when the economy is slowing and when there's been some pretty serious policy hiccups like the end of the pandemic. And so Chinese exceptionalism and depicting China as this uniquely unbroken civilization is handy domestically and handy, I think, internationally too, because you have heard the party claiming that because it is so ancient, it gets bragging rights against any civilization or country that tries to criticize China.
1: Right. During the pandemic, there was this amazing moment from Hua Chunying the chief spokesperson for the foreign ministry when she attacked the Trump administration for hinting that China might have stolen vaccine technology so she tweeted remember china has 5000 years of history while the us has less than 250
0: once again not the first very weird thing we've heard a chinese foreign ministry spokesman say or tweet but this is important because this ties into the subject that we've talked about so often on drum tower about China really feeling this is a moment to challenge the legitimacy of universal values, things like free speech or human rights, and somehow claim them as illegitimate because they are not in any way compatible with Chinese culture or Chinese values. And I think you see this now bolted on to these archaeological claims. And the full version is to say foreigners should never ask China to change because this is how China has always been.
1: Now, some people might say that China is hardly the only country to use ancient history to bolster modern nationalist movements. But do you think there's something unique about how she is doing this?
0: Absolutely right. That this is not unique to China at all. India, Japan, you know, any number of places. But I do think that we have seen so much emphasis on civilization recently. Xi Jinping giving very big speeches where. This idea of China's civilization being uninterrupted somehow means that any convergence with liberal human rights would be a kind of act of treason. It would betray those imperial dynasties. We heard Xi Jinping on June the 2nd give a big speech in which he actually said, the fact that Chinese civilization is highly consistent is the fundamental reason why the Chinese nation must follow its own path, i.e. we're very old and so don't ask us to change. And he even went on and said that because Chinese civilization is also unusually uniform, that means that the nation must be completely united and all ethnic groups integrated. And that, as you know, Gabriel, is code for imposing Chinese culture on Tibet or Xinjiang and for taking back Taiwan and for claiming the whole South China Sea. It may seem like a weird allegation to level at a leader that he is using history in this way, but I think the evidence is there. Right,
1: it's this very strange movement from an argument about history, and then you end up with some quite sinister political implications for the present.
0: And that, to the Communist Party, is worth a lot of expensive submarines. Gabriel, thank you so much for joining me on DrumTat. It's been really great having you.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's been great.
0: And thank you to our listeners who've been writing to us. We so love knowing where you are in the world as you're listening, so a big thanks To Gene, who emailed us from Montana, Natalie in Milan, Oscar in Colombia, and Bruce in New York, who thinks he may have once spotted me at the bar of the Foreign Correspondence Club in Hong Kong. That probably wasn't me, Bruce, but I enjoyed the rest of your moment. It's really fascinating. And if you want to write to us, our address is drum at economist.com. Thank you for listening to Drum Tower, and we'll be back next week. Our editor is Poppy seaberg Montefiore. Alicia Burrell and Barclay Brown produced this episode. Sound design is by Weidong Lin. The executive producer is Marguerite Han.